Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode... The Mind of a Murderer After over a year of producing Murder Most Foul, I have begun to wonder about what goes on inside the mind of a murderer, from the one-off variety to the serial kind. Are there any psychological traits that they all share? Theories of what makes for a murder are as endless as the parties who write about them. I decided to pick just one such expert to share with you, my audience. My choice? Catherine Ramsland, author and clinical psychologist. Ms. Ramsland began her career in 1992 with Prism of the Night, a biography of Anne Rice. Over her successful career, she has published 59 books and over 1,000 articles, reviews, and short stories on ghosts, vampires, serial killers, and other dark subjects. What better or more interesting expert to speak with on the subject of the mind of a murderer than Catherine Ramsland? And she joins us now. So, Dr. Ramsland, my intro at the top of the show uh, certainly doesn't do justice to your background and body of work. Why don't we start with the highlights from your resume? Well, I came into the, the crime field about probably 25 years ago when I was working um, for the Court TV website called the Crime Library. And I had started writing for them before Court TV took them over. I also, at the time, was working on my master's in forensic psychology, and I was working for John Douglas to do research for his book, which is when I went to the Lizzie Borden house and stayed overnight there. Um, And doing all that started building credentials in the crime field, and then I went to DeSales University to set up a forensic psychology track in their psychology major. So that involved a you know, number of basic psych courses like research, personality, abnormal, as well as some criminal justice courses. And then I have three specialized forensic psychology courses at the undergraduate level and also in our masters of art and criminal justice. So and at the undergraduate level, the three courses are basic forensic psychology, which is an overview. And then I do a psychology of death investigations because I do consult with coroners on a, a method called psychological autopsy. And then I have an entire course devoted to, it's called Dangerous Minds, the Psychology of Antisocial Behavior. And that covers extreme offenders, starting with juveniles, going into the distinctions among mass spree and serial killers, 
and then really focusing for the probably the whole like eight of the 16 weeks is on serial killers so us um um amateurs if you will uh would assume that there psychologically is a difference between uh someone who might commit a one-time act of passion and someone uh who uh, does this either more than once or incredibly viciously? Isn't that, uh, am I on the right track? Yeah, there's proactive and reactive. We have um, people who do, they're predators. They plan, they plot. They might only kill one person, but they have the propensity to keep going, but maybe they get caught. So we'd certainly have a few, what I would call extreme offenders among um, one-off killers like Luca Magnata in Canada, who who killed and dismembered somebody, made a sort of a rock video while he was cutting pieces off of him. You know, so that's that's an extreme offender who would be somebody different than a person who just shoots someone. Um, they may, maybe Mark David Chapman had a bigger cultural effect, but I don't call him an extreme offender because I'm looking at psychological trajectory of these individuals and and Luca Magnata would qualify as an extreme offender because of his planning um, the kinds of things he did to a person and um, you know sort of his his attitude and and the aftermath of what he did as well so we're really looking not at the sociological impact of something but really um, who are these people some have a mental illness and they still can plan that's that's kind of a myth that people think a psychotic individual can't plan of course they can plan and they do um, but some are reactive offenders um, I would say Adam Lanza is a good example of that he's the person who went to the elementary school um, to start shooting and killed you know he's a mass murderer he's a school shooter and but he was reactive something happened in his house that made him kill his mother and then go to the school he had severe ocd he had uh, asperger's disorder and a few other um, comorbid conditions and i think she might have said something or she had some plans that he just you know exploded and went that's that's more of a reactive one we could say that he kind of planned because he was a big fan of mass murderers and and certainly had a plan that you know one day he might do that but on that particular day it seemed to be more of a reactive thing so predators versus people who who just kind of i'm not going to call it snapped because that's actually a misunderstanding of these kinds of acts they usually build so it's not like a person is this today and then all of a sudden they're an offender the next day. They're not. They've, they already have been thinking about it, fantasizing about it, imagining themselves in that particular position, um, preparing themselves for it in some way, maybe to arm themselves, maybe to go um, target shooting and something like that. And then something happens and, they, and today's the day. there's a difference between a psychotic individual and a psychopathic individual and we definitely have crossover between both conditions in some cases but the term crazy doesn't really cover 
anything, you know, in, in my field. I don't use it. It's not a professional term. It's not a diagnosis of any kind. It's just, it's really the word people use to react to something they just, it's so enormous. They can't, they can't imagine anybody doing these things. Um, so they must be crazy. So that's sometimes why we get this, this kind of misunderstanding that psychopaths are also psychotic because we use the word psycho also. Um, and they're really not the same thing. Psychopaths are more predatory. They're aware of what they're doing. They know it's wrong. They can control the behavior. They just don't care. They're indifferent. They don't have remorse. They don't have any real sense of um, harm to others unless they, they really want to torture them. Then, of course, they do. But um, empathy is lacking, uh, things like that. Whereas a psychotic individual generally suffers from a delusion. Richard Trenton Chase, for example, the vampire of Sacramento, thought that his blood was diminishing and potentially turning to powder and that he had been drinking blood from animals, but that wasn't working, so he turned to humans. And that's very different from someone like Dennis Rader, who decides he wants to be a serial killer, that's how he's going to get famous, and then he starts trolling around looking for the right victims and entering their houses um, to, you know, have control over them. So very different mental conditions, but when you have an overlap of delusion and lack of remorse, that's pretty dangerous. So that's just a context to say um, each individual has their own trajectory. Um, and I spent five years working with the BTK, uh, serial killer Dennis Rader, doing his uh, autobiography, his criminal autobiography, looking at the, the various things that affected him, um, because I really think these case studies are going to give us some answers if we do enough of them. I, I do have one book where I included a dozen, before I ever worked with Rader, I included a dozen of uh, cases where mental health experts studied somebody very, for a long period of time, very uh, close and personal, interviewing them, trying to identify the influences in their lives. One of the things uh, us in the lay community, of course, uh, hope for is, uh, putting it simply, uh, catch and cure. Is anything like that possible, getting getting um, these um, uh, killers at an early age? Uh, is there any way to turn them around? When we look at enough of those, we can begin to see. Um, even psychopaths that is common, they're commonly thought to be not curable. <clears throat> that's where we are today. That doesn't mean that's where we'll stay, because there are there's an entire academic society, the scientific society for the study of psychopathy, that is trying to find a, a cognitive based treatment, cognitive behavioral based treatment, that we can use. Um, if we can identify them at a young stage. And there are some treatment programs in the United States that are seeing some success with this um, in, in adolescent kids at risk for becoming adult psychopaths, which is how we say that. Um, so I wouldn't say we'll never be able to cure them or, or at least get them to the point where they can participate in society in, a, in at least a minimally pro-social manner. There are plenty of psychopaths who aren't criminals at all. Um, 
let alone murderers and serial killers. So, so certainly they're able to control their behavior. And um, it's just, it's such a big question that I always go back to case analysis. Let's look at the cases and then talk about what led that person to that place where they decided violence was the solution to their life story and, and especially repeat violence. So uh, before we um, launch into uh, your involvement with uh, Dennis Rader, uh, let me give my audience a little thumb, thumbnail sketch of Mr. Rader. Uh, this is uh, from Wikipedia. Uh, Dennis Lynn Rader is an American serial killer known as BTK, an abbreviation he gave himself for bind, torture, kill, or the BTK strangler or the BTK killer. Between 1974 and 1991, uh, he killed 10 people in Wichita and Park City, Kansas, and sent taunting letters to police and newspapers describing the details of his crimes. From a young age, Raider harbored sadistic sexual fantasies about torturing trapped and helpless women. He also exhibited zoo sadism, by torturing, killing, and hanging small animals. Raider acted out sexual fantasies for voyeurism, autoerotic asphyxiation, and cross-dressing. He often spied on female neighbors while dressed in women's clothing, including women's underwear that he had stolen, and masturbated with ropes or other bindings around his arm and neck. Quite a resume. He had been caught and he did not go to trial. He only had a sentencing hearing because he confessed to the 10 murders. He confessed. So he, he um, had a sentencing hearing, which lasted two days. And weirdly, my book popped up because <laughs> he had it in his, in his collection. I knew the, the um, DA, the attorney who was the prosecutor. <laughs> I knew her before I ever met him. So it was kind of amusing um, that there's my book in his collection. Not that I got any royalties because he'd steal his books. Recently got a letter from him. We're still communicating because um, the book is out there and um, I do a lot of media on it. And so it's, be it's best to have the connection with him still. Maybe we correspond once a month at this point. Back then we were talking every single week, sometimes more. Um, but now there's no need to do that. So um, I don't even know if he, I think he might have seen the 2020 episode I was on because it featured his daughter's book. And he was very interested in that. When she first get, started giving interviews, he would say to me, look, my name's in the paper, <laughs> which tells you this is what I'm talking about, these superficial nature of connection because he's not thinking about all the things she's saying, how horrified she is at having her father who she loved end up being this notorious serial killer he doesn't notice any of that he notices that he has a new wave of publicity raider talks a lot about this concept of cubing which most psychologists would refer to as compartmentalizing um, 
I like Raider's concept better because it really gets at that idea that he's all sides of this cube and he can move on to any side for any purpose. So there are times when he is remorseful, quote unquote, because if he needs to play that card for a particular context, he will play it. He is religious, um, you know, but then he's a serial killer and he's a thief and he's a burglar and etc. So whatever side of the cube is working for him in a particular situation, he can move right onto it without any awareness of how it completely contradicts the moral universe of a different side of the cube. And I think that that concept, um, I actually was on the, the uh, Dr. Oz show with this, and they made a big wooden cube <laughs> with, with all the labels. You know, it was perfect. It was a great visual. I didn't take it home because it was you know, this giant cube. But, but on it was family man, church leader, serial killer, <laughs> you know, thief, <laughs> all these different roles that he played. And he, he like others, I mean, get, John Wayne Gacy was like this. Jeffrey Dahmer was like this. Ted Bundy, very similar in that they just they didn't have any sense of the inner contradictions that most of us have with our with our sense of identity when we do something that's out of character we feel it like that's kind of icky <laughs> you know not them because they're not attached very deeply to any given persona they use what they need to use they're actors they're they're definitely actors and i think raider's concept actually is an improvement over what psychologists call it, in part because you can spell it more easily. And it's one of those words that I just can't pronounce. And I don't like using it because it conveys the sense of discrete, separate segments. And that's not what it is. It's different faces from a common core. You're all of them. You're only using the one you need at a given time. So I thought that was actually a brilliant concept. He, he keeps saying that I'm the one who invented it, but I didn't. Um, he's misspelled it, C-O-U-P, so I retranslated it. <laughs> Another facet of your large body of literary work is in the realm of vampires and their devotees. Um, you worked with Anne Rice on her autobiography, and um, if I'm not mistaken, uh, mistaken, you actually went undercover uh, to do an investigative, uh, do some investigative journalism uh, involving the vampire subculture. Is that right? Um, around that time, a woman went missing who was investigating the vampire subculture and writing about it in New York. So I thought. Why don't I? I wasn't a journalist, but I but I thought, why don't I go find out what happened to her? And I used some of the Anne Rice connections, but then I it, it really was immersion journalism. I mean, I went, I dressed up, I went to the vampire clubs at midnight in Manhattan. I started traveling around the country, meeting some of the people who were. It, it was a huge subculture during the nineteen like late nineteen nineties, huge. Um, but it was an amazing experience for me as an author because I had been just doing, you know, books where you sit at your desk and you know, do research and maybe interview people. But I went places. I went to clubs. I got all dressed up like a vampire and learned a lot about, about these people. And then I, from one of them, I grabbed a supposedly haunted ring 
and that got me into the whole world of ghost hunters. And this is before there were, you know, stuff on TV. This is, this is a little bit earlier than that. So it got me into all of that. And then I wrote a book called Cemetery Stories where I, I went all over the place and, you know, I went to coroner's offices and, and conferences and, you know, collected stories about, about bodies and cemeteries. So those three books are sort of my trilogy of immersion journalism. And from there, I launched into all the crime stuff that I'm doing. And Vampires and Ghosts uh, led you right to my favorite character celeb, Lizzie Borden. I was actually working on two things at once. <laughs> one, one was a book called Ghost, which where I was going around with all the ghost hunters and exploring all their, their equipment and whatnot. And the other was um, John Douglas was writing a book. The former FBI profiler was writing a book called The Cases That Haunt Us. And he had hired me as a research assistant for that book. So there, there I was. One of his cases was Lizzie Borden. And uh, I thought, okay, because it was reputed to be a haunted house too. So I thought, okay, two, two things here. We can do both. For John Douglas, I went to the museum and looked at all the, you know, the notes and whatnot. Um, found some items that were very useful to him that other people had not yet written about. And um, then I stayed, it was a bed and breakfast. Oh, I also met one of the premier Lizzie Borden experts in town, Leonard Rubello, who who wrote a massive tome on Lizzie Borden. Um, He spent the evening with me talking about a lot of stuff like the Ouija board results from during the time um, of the crime, etc. And then nobody else was booked that night. And I was in the in the room where Abby Borden was killed. Right. So I decided I'd put my recording on. <laughs> and it was kind of an odd thing because it was right across the street from the bus station. So you're not, you know, you're getting light into the room. You're not really getting much quiet. But still, um, there were all kinds of stories like there was a dog that used to follow the, the owners and would never go into that room. Um, doors would lock during the tours, you know, where, where nobody was actually locking them. People had seen mysterious ectoplasmic looking things coming out of the kitchen. So there were stories, um, you know, whatever they, whatever they were, I was there just to see what I could get. And during the night, the recorder turned off. You know, it was set for voice activation only, but it was turned off which disturbed me because <laughs> I wanted it to stay on. I don't know why it was turned off. Right before I had stayed there, another guest had stayed there and claimed that an older woman had pulled the sheets over him. So that could be Abby Borden. Nobody pulled the sheets over me. I'm, I'm known as a ghost repellent. If you want to get rid of the ghosts, <laughs> invite me. <laughs> so nobody pulled sheets over me. However, um, we did go down in the, the next morning after having a great breakfast with little Axe cookies, (laughs) but no, no sour mutton stew or any of that kind of thing. So we went down the basement and and I was, I wanted to check down there because there were, you know, it was full of stuff. And I, and I really did think she had done it and had hidden the, the, just throw the Axe down the privy. Nobody's going after it. That's an easy thing. Um, So 
we asked if anyone was there. We got this, this very loud, yes, which sent us back up the steps. Um, and, and then someone was listening to the little bit of recording I did get, and there were some, he thought there were some distinct voices on that as well. So was there or wasn't there, you know, with ghost hunters, any little staticky thing sounds like a voice. But sometimes you do get, I've definitely heard some amazingly clear voices on these tapes, and I've a couple of times gotten them myself. Um, what they are, I couldn't tell you. I'm not. I'm not here to tell you that ghosts exist. I was with a. I was with one of the people. Like she's a maid, I think. Sure, the cook the or whatever for your yeah. breakfast. And... Um, so she came down with me, but there wasn't anybody else. I mean, I have a hard time with people who claim Lizzie's ghost is there. I don't think so. She moved right away. She, you know, if she's anywhere, she's up at the other house that she bought. Um, but you know, Abby and Andrew clearly. It could have restless there. souls, obviously. Um, I was on the Unsolved Mysteries that covered this as well. Uh, and I, and this, the, early, the first bed and breakfast people, they, they understood the appeal, but they didn't make it into a thing the way I think it's currently being the current, done now. Yes, oh, very much, very much. Yeah, I mean, they, they let you take, they, when they did the tours, they were more historical. They had a couple of, mediums in just to give them some ideas but it wasn't something that they were doing and they thought it was interesting what i was doing because i was also researching it as a, a crime right um but there wasn't any big play up on that at all during that time that was a very different set of owners well catherine we're coming to the end of our time together but i would be remiss if i didn't ask you um did your undercover um work with the um the missing uh, person in the um, vampire situation. Uh, did that help in any way in, in finding her or uh, uh, catching who was involved with her disappearance? I can't say. <laughs> well, uh, let the record reflect that the guest has refused to answer the question. Well, Dr. Ramsland, before I, I bid you adieu, uh, why don't you tell my listeners where they can find your books and uh, possibly get in touch with you if they have uh, questions or want to follow you? Are you on Facebook uh, or websites, etc.? Well, mostly it's available on Amazon or Barnes & Noble and the online. Uh, I actually don't have a website anymore. I'm, I do a lot of Facebook that's mostly where you can find me. Anyone can friend me. Um, but I kind of left the static website idea behind a few years ago. My most recent book will be of interest to your audience. It's How to Catch a Killer. And it's 30 cases of the investigations into serial killer cases and how they actually figured it out. In some cases, it was law enforcement ingenuity. Uh, some cases, serial killers making mistakes, um, turning themselves in a few times. Uh, so you get you get this wide array of cases and the investigative strategies that did or didn't work. But um, I think I think this audience is is probably very would be very excited to have a book like that. Great. Well, again, thank you so much. Uh, as they say uh, at this time, stay safe. And uh, again, uh, I appreciate it so much. And I really look forward to 
talking to you again maybe sometime. Okay. Thank you for having me. And to my loyal listeners out there, thank you so much for joining me again uh, for this episode of Murder Most Foul. I uh, invite you to tell your friends uh, about my podcast and also to visit uh, the website, which is uh, www.murdermostfoul, all one word, no caps, no spaces, dot com, to uh, link to my email, uh, leave me a comment. Uh, what you like, what you don't like, a case that you may know about that I don't uh, that might be fun to cover. Again, uh, in this time, uh, please stay safe. And until next time.